We'll be reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And it's um, in the Pew Bible, it's page 1117 through 1118. And we had, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he, said, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one else has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Church family, if you have your Bibles still open to chapter 19, we'll walk through the text together this morning and make some observations um, of the text. But I want to begin with a simple question. Simple, at least from the perspective of the English language and grammar, it's not a hard question to understand, Um, but probably the most profound thing that we could answer this morning, and the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Again, not a hard question to understand, but answering that question is the most important thing that we could do this morning, church family. The answer to that question, the most profound and fundamental thing about us, regardless of what we do for a living or where we're from or any other way we might describe ourselves this morning, the answer to that question defines more about who we are than anything else. Who do we say Jesus is? You see, next week we'll meet and we'll gather and we'll celebrate Easter this this year at the high school. 
But if we can't answer that question, friends, then we meet in vain and we might as well be doing any number of other things next Sunday morning. You see, because if Jesus was not who he said he was, then there is no empty tomb. There is no reason to celebrate. And in that case, the, the cross was nothing more than just a cruel way to torture and kill a pretty decent Middle Eastern man. But friends, this morning, if Jesus was who he said he was and is who he says he is, then it changes everything for us. Then Easter can't just be another day. And it certainly can't just be a day about family and a day about eggs and a day about an Easter bunny. Because friends, if Jesus is who he said he was, then Easter means everything for us. It is the hope that we have. It is the celebration that we have. It is the only reason we have hope for an eternity. So this week as we're preparing for historically what has been known as Holy Week, today being the beginning of that week in Palm Sunday, that's what we've known this day to be traditionally. We're going to take a week out of Deuteronomy, take a break from Deuteronomy this week, that's the study we're going through as a church family, and ask the question, who is Jesus from Luke chapter 19? It's one of the gospel narratives of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Before we begin in the text, though, I want to give you some background. We're not studying through the book of Luke, so I don't want to just dive in without giving you a little bit of context. And so we'll do that in two ways. I'll give you the setting, what's going on in Jerusalem, what's happening at this time for these people. And then also, what what has Jesus been teaching his disciples? What's been happening in the book of Luke that's important for us as we approach Luke chapter 19? So to begin, again, the setting, give you the context, what's going on. People are beginning to gather in Jerusalem. It's the time of year known as Passover, a most important Jewish festival where people will gather in Israel and celebrate, remember the night that while they were captives in Egypt, the death angel came, but he passed over. He passed by all of those Israelites that had the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorpost. They're they're celebrating that in this feast called Passover. We know, living in light of the cross, living as New Testament Christians, that Um, that this was just a foreshadowing. This death angel and this Passover lamb was just a foreshadowing of the ultimate and perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus, who would be offered once and for all for us not to only escape physical death, but eternal spiritual death. And so Passover is, is pointing us to look at, look forward to. John's gospel account in John's version of this story, he tells us that there's a buzz going on around the city, that Jerusalem has, has got this buzz, and they're, they're wondering, people are beginning to ask whether Jesus would show up for this festival, for Passover. You see, the, the, the Pharisees had put a word out. They were sort of a manhunt, if you can think about it like that. They're looking for Jesus. They've got these accusations against him, and they're wondering whether he's going to show his face in Jerusalem. And they're watching, and they're waiting. Well, from Luke's perspective, the, you know, remember, remember now who Luke is. He's a doctor, and he's written, he's, he begins his letter telling us, I'm going to write an account. I'm going to go and get eyewitness accounts of this man Jesus and put together this story as best I can so that you will know the truth of who Jesus is. And so he's a storyteller. And from Luke's perspective, there is no doubt that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. See, back in chapter 9 of Luke, he says that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. And from that point forward, everything he did was leading up to Jerusalem and what would happen there, which we know is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In chapter 18, immediately preceding our text that we're in this morning, 
in verse 31, Jesus reminds his disciples and Luke reminds us that this was his mission. This is why Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He's going to die. And the text demonstrates to us that despite the tensions, the expectations, the people waiting and watching to see whether Jesus would show up, he indeed does show up in Jerusalem, but he doesn't slip in under the cover of darkness. He doesn't make it a secret thing, but he does it in a very public way, putting on display himself and his kingship. So that's kind of what's going on as far as the setting goes. As far as teaching, what has Jesus been teaching his disciples that would get us ready for Luke chapter 19? There's certainly a number of things that he's been teaching them and instructing them in and walking them through, but there are three lessons in particular that I think it would be good for us to notice. Have you ever been in a, a class or maybe a seminar or a lecture and the teacher's talking and he's, he's going on about something, but it's just going over your head? That's a, that's, a, that's a phrase we use for that idea of just a calf at a new gate. You don't really understand what you're hearing. It just goes over your head, right? Well, that's what the disciples have been uh, experiencing as Jesus has been teaching, particular, particularly as it concerns these three things. The first was that Jesus was teaching about his death. This is not uncommon. He's mentioned this other times, but most recently, again, in, in chapter 18, verse 31. If you have your Bibles open to 19, you can probably flip over one page and read with me. It says this in verse 31 of chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going into Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he, that's himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. We look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. You can imagine the confusion. The disciples are hearing this about Jesus' death, and it just doesn't make sense. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him heal the sick. How in the world could he die? And it didn't make sense as far as what he was telling them. He's going to be king. He's going to set up his kingdom. And now all of a sudden he's saying he's going to be dead. They didn't have a category for understanding how a dead king could help anything. And before we throw stones at the disciples and, and judge them for not understanding, we get that. It wouldn't make sense for us either if, if someone was proclaiming to be king and said that he was going to rule, but also said that he was going to be dead. It just didn't make sense. They didn't understand. They weren't following Jesus' teaching here. Second thing, though, he's not only teaching them that he's going to be king and that he will have to die, but he's teaching them about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, this kingdom that he would institute. You go back to chapter 18, you see this, this, this idea with the Pharisee and the tax, tax collector. You see these two individuals, and as the disciples learn, and as you read through the text, you'll see that the religious leader, the one who's supposed to be the holy man, is left out of the kingdom, and the wicked tax collector gets in. That's completely backwards to their thinking. They wouldn't have understood that. That didn't make sense to them. Then you keep going in the text, and you get to verse 15, and he talks about little children being brought to him, and that didn't make sense. There wasn't a place in their culture for, for little kids to be of any of importance. And you get to the rich young ruler in chapter 18, verse 18. And finally, the disciples are thinking, this is the type of guy we want, Jesus. This guy is morally, he's a good guy. He has resources and finances that we could use in your kingdom. And it's not him. He's not to be a citizen of the kingdom. And this is confusing. If it's not this guy, Jesus, then who? Who could be in this kingdom if it's not this rich young ruler? 
And it's almost as if the text says, and Jesus says, well, I'm glad you asked. Because you keep going in the text, and you get to verse 35 of chapter 18, and you meet a blind beggar on the side of the road who seems to be clueless, has no clue of what's going on, but he shouts out a most profound statement. Son of David. And you see that as that text unfolds that this blind beggar that probably smelled funny and no one wanted anything to do with was actually the guy who was, Jesus was saying is going to be a, a part of this kingdom, a citizen of this kingdom. That didn't make sense. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 19, Jesus goes on, and who else is going to be in the kingdom? Well, Zacchaeus is going to be there. And this is probably confusing because the, the disciples are saying, no, Jesus, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. They're the scum of the earth. No one loves tax collectors. They rip people off. They take advantage of people. No one loves those guys. How could he be a part of the kingdom? And, and all of this, Jesus is showing them, he's demonstrating to them that those who can save themselves, those who have it figured out, those who think they don't need Jesus, are not the ones that he came to save. But instead, he came to see, save the lost and the lowly and the least of these those who knew their need for a Savior and confessed their sins and, and followed Christ. So he's teaching them about him as the king, that he's going to die. He's teaching them about citizens of the kingdom. But thirdly, he's teaching them about the arrival of his kingdom. Chapter 19, if you look at verse 11, you see that there's some confusion. Seems to be the case with the disciples often. Seems to be the case in my life. More than I'd like to admit. Verse 11 says this. As they, that's the disciples, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You see the confusion. Jesus is, Jesus is recognizing that they're thinking the kingdom is about to be here. Like in the next days, the kingdom is going to be here. Jesus is going to come in as a military victor and out, um, throw out Rome and their leadership and set up Israel and Jerusalem as its own nation and be a king over that nation. And he realizes that they're misunderstanding. So verse 12, he says this. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. We won't go into all of that peril, but he's teaching them that he's not going to come in like a, a king with a, a, an army and conquer them, this, this, this Rome that's ruling over them. But instead, like in this parable, Jesus is going to go to a faraway country, but he's going to return for them. He's coming back. They missed that. There would be a lapse in time between when he left, when he ascended and went to be with the Father, and when he would return to gather his children to himself and to set up this forever kingdom. And in that, in that between time, in that interim time, was the time when the disciples, their one purpose in life was to spread this gospel to all people so that they may know this king and about this kingdom and how to be a part of this kingdom. And they were missing it. I know that's a bit of an introduction. But friends, I want to start walking through Luke chapter 19 by asking the question that I started with, who is Jesus the disciples were committed to following him, but we see that on the details of, of that, they, they didn't understand a lot of the details and what Jesus was doing. So why does it matter this morning that some 2,000 years later we're meeting here, we just read a text about a guy entering into town on a donkey. Why does that matter? What's the, what's the point there? What do we see in the text that would inform us and answer the question for us, who is Jesus? Let's look at our text together and try to answer that question. Throughout church history, Church, scholars, theologians have referred to the threefold office of Christ. You may have heard that language before. The idea of office of, of prophet, priest, and king being the way that we understand Jesus' threefold office. Well, Dr. Luke in his account, as we walk through chapter 19 of Luke, 
I think if we use that, that model, that, that threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, Luke demonstrates to us that Jesus is fulfilling all three of those positions. And that's how we can kind of walk through this text and make sense of it this morning and answer our question, who is Jesus? We'll take them in a little bit different order this morning because of the way the text gives them to us. We'll start by seeing Jesus as the king. He is truly the king. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he'd said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two, disciples, sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. I love to just picture scenes like this, especially when you're walking through gospel narratives or narratives in Scripture, trying to put yourself there and imagine how this would have looked. I think there's sometimes uh, comical moments in Scripture that we sometimes miss because we're, we're not thinking about it as if we were there. But I can imagine myself there. We have these two disciples, right? We don't, we don't know who they are for sure. It could have been Philip or Andrew or maybe even Matthew. It could have been two unnamed disciples. We'll see that in the text that there was a multitude of disciples that were not named could have been Fred and Tom. We don't know who they were. Those names are not very Jewish, but we could go with Fred and Tom this morning. They go and they listen to Jesus. They obey and they go into the city. They find a colt of a donkey, just as Jesus has said. It's there. It's waiting on them. But that's not all. Jesus has also given them a qualifier. He says, the, the donkey that I want you to go and get has to be unridden. It's an unridden colt. So can you imagine this scene with me? As they get, as they get into this, this small village and they, they, find the, they enter the town and they find the donkey and, and Fred looks at Tom and he says, hey man, look, just like Jesus said, it's a donkey. Must have been the one he's talking about. And they, they go to get him. Owner comes out and says, hey, what, what are you guys doing with my donkey? The Lord needs it. That seems to be a good enough explanation. He doesn't really question them or, or go into any further discussion. That's, that's a good enough explanation for him. And so they turn to leave with, with the donkey. And I can imagine them looking back like, ah, Hey, man, I know uh, beggars can't be choosers. Um, you know if this donkey's been ridden, is this a brand new donkey? Because we need our donkey to be brand new. That, that, that has to be comical to watch this whole uh, interaction play out. It was a new donkey, so it met the qualification. Thanks a bunch. They were on their way. It had to have been an incredible sight. I love getting into stuff like that. It's really awkward. Fun stuff, but there's a couple of explanations for what's going on here. Depending on what commentaries you read, what uh, writers you read, there could have been that Jesus had been in this region before. He had been through this village and he knew the donkey's owner. And so when the disciples say the Lord needs it, he knew who the Lord was. And there's no hesitation in his answer. So that's one possible explanation. Some scholars will say that, that, that it, was, it was prophetically predicting future events. That Jesus, because he's God, knew what was going to happen. And he told them that they would find the donkey, and they did. And that's a great explanation. And even if that's the case, it's not so strange that the man was so, um, so quick to let them use his donkey. There's a, there's, a, there's a practice in this culture called angaria. I guess I'm saying that right. Whereby a political or religious leader could request the use of, of livestock. It's a common thing. And the people would readily grant that request. So either way here, the, the, the point is, church family, that Jesus had a plan. 
Jesus was in control of these circumstances. And that plan that he had included the use of this donkey. It included the disciples that would go and retrieve it. It included the owners of this donkey. And all of that was part of it. And God was putting together this plan that would ultimately not be thwarted, whereby he would come into Jerusalem and announce his kingship. We see that it happens exactly like that. Verse 35. And they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. That's a strange phrase to me as well. They, they set Jesus on it. Now, we don't know a lot about the donkey. In fact, we only really know one thing about the donkey or two, that it was unridden and that it was a, a foal, it was a colt, it was a young donkey. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that's really strange, right? That Jesus gets the colt and they're setting him on this small donkey. And so when I first read this, I'm thinking, you know, when we get to heaven... And we get all our hard questions answered, right? We're going to ask the hard questions first. We want to know those things. But at some point, when me and Jesus are just hanging out, I want to ask him, like, Jesus, really, did you need them to set you on the donkey? Like, you, you probably could have done that. You're capable of doing that on your own, right? But the more I read this, I think, I think every word and phrase of Scripture is important. Every word and phrase of Scripture is inspired truth from God. And I think there's something even going on there. I think that Jesus, in allowing the the disciples to serve him in this way, mount him on this donkey, he's allowing, as a king would have, allowed his servants to serve him. The king is allowing his disciples to serve him. He mounts this donkey and he rides into the city. Verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. You can picture in our culture and in our context, a red carpet, rolling out the red carpet for royalty. They're throwing their cloaks on the road so that this donkey and the king does not, does not even have to touch the dirt. And as he began drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So in the first of this threefold office, we see Jesus as king. We see this in verses 35 through 37. Why does that, one of those, that, that section of verses, why is it important for us? Why does it matter this morning that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, first of all, friends, this is not the way that pilgrims would have entered into Jerusalem, not the way travelers would have come into Jerusalem for Passover. They may have had horses or donkeys, and they may have ridden camels or anything else from long distances away, But as they approached the city, as they got near to the city, they would have dismounted whatever animal they were on and began to walk up the final ascent into Jerusalem. If you read through the Psalms, you know there are hymns of ascent. And these hymns would have been sung by pilgrims, those traveling into Jerusalem to prepare their hearts, singing these hymns as they approached the city. They would have slowed their pace to demonstrate humility, to demonstrate that they were expecting God to do great things in this festival that they were, they were going to attend. But Jesus didn't dismount. Jesus didn't get off of the donkey. He rode into the city. And it wasn't because he was tired and his legs needed a break and he just wanted to keep riding. No, friends, when Jesus rode into the city, it was intentional. And he chose to ride into the city on a donkey because 500 years before Christ was born, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, says in chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, Greatly, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So 500 years before Jesus is born, the prophet Zechariah is pronouncing that Jerusalem 
is going to see her king coming. But watch what else he says. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Friends, for those in the crowd that day that had eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand, they would have seen this scene, and there would have been no doubt what Jesus was doing. He was announcing his kingship. He was proclaiming to all those that would see it, your king is here. Now, they probably, like the disciples, wouldn't have understood the details of what that meant, all the specifics of what his kingdom would look like and who would be a part of it and that his death and resurrection would secure it, but the point would have been clear. Jesus is saying, I'm king. So, friends, don't miss this. See the beauty in the text here. The king is here. And he's riding on a, on a humble donkey. Meekness and majesty collide in the scene where manhood and deity are in one person on the back of a donkey. The Lord of all creation is riding on the beast of burden. Our king is here. But he's not just king. If you continue in the text, text demonstrates to us that he's also prophet. We have that a bit with the donkey and them te- Jesus telling the disciples to go and retrieve the donkey. And it says uh, in verse 32, and so they were sent and went away. And just, uh, and it, when they found it just as he had told them, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He predicts what's going to happen. He predicts future events. And then sometimes you, you don't see the fulfillment of prophecy for quite some time. But in this case, it's probably only a few hours later. And for us, a few verses later, we see the fulfillment of what he said. It happened like he said it would. But it really only builds from there. You go to verse 41. Jesus is going to make a much more bold prophecy. Verse 41, he says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The king of the universe is weeping. And he's doing it because he's seeing a people. He's seeing the Israelite people, his people, that have seen and heard, but they've resisted. They've seen and heard, but they've rejected this king. And time and time again, he's revealed himself through miracles, through teaching, and they've rejected, and he's weeping. We're going to see the rest of this prophecy in a second, but just a side note here this morning, friends, that it could be a very dangerous thing for you to be at Poplar Spring Baptist Church. Why is that? Because here at Poplar Spring, we want to make everything about the gospel. What is the gospel? It's that we were all rebels. We were all sinners. We had all, like the people in Israel, had rejected this one, the king. We had sinned and went our own way. And yet he still came and lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the law. And yet he was still crucified on a cross on our behalf to pay a debt that we could not pay. And he rose from the grave, eternally securing our redemption. That's the gospel. That's what hope we have. That's the hope in in salvation that we have. And you may hear that truth, the truth of the gospel, in any one of our small groups, Sunday school, growth groups, Awana. And the Spirit of God may be stirring in you. The Spirit of God may be convincing you and teaching you the truth of this, resonating in your innermost being that God did this on your behalf, that he sent his only son to die for you. And the Spirit may be showing you that truth this morning. Why would that be dangerous? Well, because, friends, as Jesus shows us in the text here, that if we neglect such a great salvation, there could be coming a day when the truth of the gospel does not stir you anymore. You hear someone teach and talk about Jesus, 
Jesus dying on the cross for you. And the Spirit doesn't make this truth resonate in your heart anymore. Your soul is not pierced with the reality of this truth. It's as if a foggy veil has been put in front of your eyes and you don't see it or hear it as you once did. No, friend, that's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Now is the hour of salvation. Surrender to him today. You've heard it said you're not promised tomorrow. And that's true. But even if you have tomorrow, you're not promised that the spirit of God's going to quicken your heart as he might today. Surrender to him today. I beg you, if you're hearing the word of the gospel this morning and the spirit's convincing you of its truth, surrender to him. The people had heard, the people had listened The king is here and they miss it. The king meets with us this morning. His spirit is here with us this morning. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. 43, continuing the text with me. For the days will come upon you. Jesus, this is again the prophecy that Jesus is pronouncing. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see the prophecy Jesus proclaims. We see, you know, that we've we've lived past this moment and so we look back in history and we see that it indeed happens just as Jesus proclaimed. If if we were to load up this morning in a bus and go to Raleigh-Durham Airport and take a plane ride over to Jerusalem this morning, we could walk down some old streets, ancient streets, see some ancient sites that were around during Jesus' time. But you know what we couldn't see? The temple. The temple that we're about to read about in this text. Why? Because architecturally this temple was destroyed. It was brought to the ground. And all that remains of it is one little piece of a wall that we call the Wailing Wall. You've probably seen Jewish uh, men and women praying before this wall. In 66 AD, Rome began a military conflict with Israel. We call it the First Jewish Revolt. That military conflict led to, in 70 AD, Rome uh, sacking Jerusalem and destroying the temple. We see in history that it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. Jews and Christians were dispersed and scattered all over the land. Jesus foretold what would happen, and we see that it was fulfilled. So he's king. Jesus is prophet. We see that his words spoken come true. Which for Jerusalem and, and the temple, that's a terrible thing. But, friends, we also have the hope of chapter 18, verse 31. He says his life's going to be taken. He's going to be killed and, and mocked and scourged, but he's going to be raised from the dead. So if we can see that in history, things like that happen. We can trust the truth of the gospel that the prophet has spoken and his words are true and will come to fruition. But thirdly, friends, we see that he's also priest. We see that Jesus is priest, great high priest. And friends, this is the hope of the gospel that we have. This is why we meet on Easter Sunday and celebrate the resurrection. Jesus has demonstrated in the entrance into Jerusalem that he is king. He's demonstrated in his words that he's prophet. But immediately when he gets into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. The temple had been turned into a marketplace. A place where dishonest businessmen had set up their booths and were taking advantage of people, ripping people off. The priests that were in that temple should have taken care of this, should have cleaned up God's house, but it was neglected. And this was a place where God's name should have been honored, but in fact it was actually being dishonored. And we can imagine as we read through the text of Scripture what a a travesty this was for Jesus. 
For those kiddos that are in our, our, our kids' Sunday school classes in the last couple weeks, we, we were reading through and teaching through the story where Joseph and Mary went to the temple with Jesus when he was a boy. You guys will remember that story. One of the only stories, or the only story we have from Jesus when he was a small boy before he uh, reached adulthood. And what do we learn about him? Mary and Joseph left him in the temple and when they returned to get him, you remember what they say? When you, they're questioning, where, where were you? What are you doing? What, what's going on here? You know what he tells them? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be at my father's house? So, so the only thing that we know, really know about Jesus from the time he was a boy was that, that Jesus knew the importance, understood the importance of meeting with his father at the temple. This is something he carried with him his entire life. And we see that in his communion with God through prayer and through times of isolation where he would get alone with God. And so we can imagine that when he gets to the temple and he sees this corruption, it tears his heart out. And he cleans house. Verse 45 says he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold Saying to them, it is written, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He cleans house. That's not the only thing, though. In verse 47, if we continue, we see that he begin teaching daily in the temple. Jesus is teaching them. The chief priests and the scribes and principal men were seeking to destroy him, but Jesus is going before the, te- the people and he's teaching them. He's, he's, he's cleaned house and he begins to preach and teach daily and instruct the hearers about the truth of this kingdom. And if you look at verse 48, the second half of verse 48, it says this, and they hung on his very words. Your translations maybe say, it's like hanging on his words, but the, the, the Greek here is the idea that they were just clinging to everything he was say, saying. So Jesus, the priest who has superseded all those priests that held that position before him, who were holding that position, and he superseded them in his teaching as a rabbi. His teaching, the, the text tells us they were amazed by him because he taught as one who had authority. His words, the word, was captivating as he would proclaim the truth of who he was to them. But what was he teaching? You have to wonder, right? And I don't think Jesus is taking a time out here, you know, a few days before he's going to be crucified to teach advanced calculus or our microbiology or any number of those things that we may learn in school. But I think Jesus is taking this opportunity to drill home and to drive home the, the things that he's been teaching his disciples that they were just missing. He knows his time on earth is, is, is coming to a close and he's teaching them. He's teaching them with authority that he is the king, that he's the, 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 the prophet who knew the beginning from the end, that he's the high priest who would go before them and perform his priestly duties. What are the duties of a priest? What does a high priest do? In his teaching, what would have he been telling them? Well, friends, a high priest would go into the temple in Jerusalem, where he's at. The, they would go into the Holy of Holies, and they would offer a sacrifice of a perfect, spotless lamb on behalf of the sins of the people. They would offer that lamb for the atonement of the, the people on behalf of Jerusalem. And Ju- Jesus is now in the holy city. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. And he's teaching about himself being the great high priest. But there's one difference, friends. He's not the high priest that's going to go in and be the sacrificer. He is the sacrificer, but he's also the sacrifice. That he's going to go before the Holy of Holies, go before God himself and offer his life in exchange for ours. He's talking about himself. He's going to go not, not once as the priests of days of old would go in and offer and that would atone for a while until there's more sin and they would have to go again and offer again because there's more sin and he would go and offer again. No, when Jesus came before God as the perfect spotless lamb, he offered himself once for all peoples. 
So our great high priest offered himself. So that's the question that I started with this morning. Who is Jesus? Why does Easter matter? What's the point of this text? What do we do with this? How do we apply this text? What does it mean for us this morning that this great high priest, this one Jesus, who is the king, would offer himself the king in exchange for rebel sinners like us? I think there are three responses that we see in this text to Jesus, and I think those responses will be some application for us this morning. Let's let the text of Scripture show us how they responded to Jesus and ask the Spirit to show us where we're at. Ask Him to show us where we would and how we would to respond to Jesus. So the first two kind of look the same. But number one, we first see that there are worshipers of Jesus that would follow Him with their very lives. In 37 and 38, verses 37 and 38, we see that the, the disciples are leading the charge. And this multitude of people, these, these, the, this mass of people, they're leading the charge in a celebration in worship for King Jesus. And they're actually quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 118, 26. And it says this, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're ascribing worship to Jesus. And though they didn't understand the full meaning of that psalm, they didn't understand everything that this kingdom would mean and everything that Christ as King would mean for their lives, they were submitting to him. They were willing to follow him to the grave. If you go back in Psalm and read this in Psalms, you see that they actually exchanged a word there. In Psalms, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples here on this day were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were ascribing to him kingship. And they were willing to follow him as king wherever it led them. Friends, these were the ones that got it. We know that the apostles were in that number. Those those men that would give their lives literally go all over the land and, and spread the gospel, spread the news of this king and his kingdom, and would ultimately give their lives for it and be killed and martyred for this truth. They submitted their entire existence to this king and whatever he wanted for their lives. Does this this response resonate with you this morning, church family? Do you hear the truth of the gospel and you know when you hear the the fact that a, a man came and lived a perfect life and died for you and rose from the dead that your only appropriate response is, I am yours. Whatever that looks like, Jesus, whatever you want for my life, I'm yours. You send me where you send me and I'll go. There was another response to Jesus, though. Look at me when I say this one because it's going to help you to see this. They were worshipers of Jesus. And I use the air quotes to be sarcastic because they were worshiping Jesus as long as there was a party, right? They're just there for the party. It's like those in the crowd that joined in the celebration, worshiping Jesus as he came and made his entrance into Jerusalem. They sung his praises and were all about him as long as it was convenient or easy. But they were probably also in that number that at his trial were yelling, crucify him. These folks were all about Jesus when it was fun or celebratory or convenient. But when it called them to put their lives on the line, this idea of a king who would not just be king, but would require their submission to his lordship, require them to submit their entire existence to him, they wanted nothing of it. That's why when it became easier to do something else with Jesus, like crucify him, Well, that'll work too. And the reality is, friends, that there are probably some of us here today that are in that that scenario, that you're okay with Jesus, 
Sounds like a pretty good guy. I'm open to the idea of Jesus. He taught some really good things. And so there's some things I can model my behavior after that are, that are praiseworthy and noteworthy in Jesus' life. But not if he calls me to take up my cross and follow him. Not if he calls me to do that. I won't follow him there. God forbid. Don't just be a worshiper because it's convenient. Because it's what you grew up doing. Because it's what we do on Sundays in the South. Give your life to him third response we see there were those that were blatant opposers to jesus you see them in verse 39 it says this and some of the pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples even the pharisees were recognizing that there was something about this one they're calling him teacher rabbi there's something about this one that's noteworthy but they were offended that the disciples would take that to the point of ascribing worship to jesus you see they had this attitude as the pharisees that we know We've got it figured out. We've got all the Bible answers. And we give worship to God alone. But what they were missing was that Jesus is God. (laughs) Infuriated them that that these men were singing praises to Jesus and worshiping Jesus. But I love Jesus' reply. Jesus replies that not only will he not silence them, but if for whatever reason they were silenced, that even the rocks would cry out. What an incredible slap in the face of these religious leaders. What a diss. That he would say, uh, you ever heard the phrase, uh, sharp as a box of rocks? I think that's applicable here. Jesus is saying, hey guys, here's, 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 here's the truth of the matter. is If they were quiet, the rocks would get it before you do. An inanimate box of rocks would understand, I'm the king of the universe before you are because your hearts are hardened and you've rejected the truth of who I am as king. Is that not like many in the world today? God forbid, even possibly in this room, that don't see King Jesus, that don't know him as Lord, and there, as a result, heart is opposed to him. Verse 47 says this, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. That word is a heavy word. It's not, it's not just as simple as kill him or do away with him or cast him out. Or be done with him. They wanted to destroy him. That's my Jesus. They're wanting to destroy him. Here's the reality, friends. You can't remain apathetic. There is no neutral with Jesus. You can't just be okay with Jesus. Because it moved from that point to a point where you were repulsed by him. And this is what happened. They wanted to destroy him. Here's the hope we have, friends, this morning is that next Sunday we will gather at the high school and though we may have technical issues and sound issues and screen issues and parking issues, who knows what we have in store next week. But here's the thing I do know, friends, is that we'll meet and we will worship and sing praises to King Jesus because the tomb is empty and their plan, their puny little attempt to destroy him was obliterated when that stone was rolled away and he came marching out in victory. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the hope we have. That's who Jesus is. I'll end in the same way we began. Who is Jesus? I think Dr. Luke has demonstrated to us that he is prophet, priest, and king. Is he your king? This very moment, the Spirit is either affirming the truth of this text to your heart, and you know it to be true. Your innermost being is saying, yes, thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're just thinking about lunch, and I'm ready to get out of here. I bet that fried chicken's going to be good.
Here's the response this morning, friends. Call upon the name of Jesus. He's the king, but he's the king who died on your behalf. So as Miss Peggy comes, as Pastor Stephen comes to lead us in a time of response, I'm going to pray for us. I'll be around this, this morning if you want to talk afterwards. Pastor Stephen, I know we'll do the same. We would, it would be the joy, one of the greatest joys of our lives to get to show you and walk through Scripture and demonstrate to you what it looks like to submit to this king. Please come talk to us. We would love to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for an empty tomb and a king who died in our place, who shed his own blood for rebels who had rejected him. Father, in this moment, in this time that we've set aside that we call a response time, God, would your spirit be at work convincing every one of us, believers and those who have not yet placed their trust in him, in you, would you be at work this morning convincing us of the truth of the gospel? Change our hearts, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.